That's Galatians chapter 6, verses 6 through 10 is where we'll be focusing in on when we read it here in just a moment, which you don't need to put that slide up quite yet, uh, guys in the back. Uh, we'll, we'll read all 10 verses for the sake of context. But until that time comes, uh, just know Galatians, Galatians chapter 6, verses 6 through 10 will be our primary target for the morning. What I want to do this morning is we are finishing up and uh, discussing our sermon series uh, on stewardship. It's just a really short, a quick hitter. It always feels like we can get something done when we do those. And it's just two weeks long. And so as we do that, we want to talk about uh, stewardship. We talked about last week that everything that we've been given to us has been given to us by God. And, and I want to argue today, when we're talking about resources, I want to kind of make that tent really big. So time, money, energy, uh, ability, talent, skills, those kinds of things. We talk about our resources that God has given to us to steward, that he's entrusted us with these things. My argument today, and that's what I mean by this, is not that I'm going to yell at you or make an argument, but simply what I'm trying to get across is that the local church is to be the place where, where you, uh, is the primary place where you invest those resources. That God has given you, the local church, as a practical means of living out the Christian life. And that this, in the local church, is where the rubber really meets the road. That God's plan was to gather people together that he called to himself, and then see those people gathered into small local communities that covenant and and commit to one another, uh, because the Christian life is hard, and it's long, and there's a lot that goes on, and we need each other to do it. And because of that, I want to argue that this is the place that we need to focus in primarily when when we talk about how do I utilize my resources for the time that God has given me here on earth, that you want to plug into a local church. Any Christian who's not a part of the local church, I'm always going to suggest to them, be a part of a local church. I believe that is God's plan for your life, is to be a part of that no matter where you live or, or what that might look like. And so that's my argument as we look to this passage this morning. And so I'm going to give you four reasons that the local church is to be the primary place where we invest our lives from Galatians, uh, primarily 6 through 10, Galatians chapter 6, verses 6 through 10. But to get us there, and now let's go to pull it up on the screen, Galatians 6, 1 through 10. Just to give us some context, I'm going to read all 10 verses there together. So starting in verse 1 of Galatians chapter 6, it says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in the spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. And so what we want to see is verses 6 through 10 come to us in this greater context of the book of Galatians. Right in that immediate spot, we see that Paul is encouraging these Christians to help each one another, particularly those who are caught in transgression. He's telling us to bear one another's burdens, but we do it in such a way understanding that your obedience is your obedience and my obedience is my obedience. I cannot be obedient for you, But God has called those who are spiritual to be there and bear the burdens of one another. Again, I don't know how that happens if you're not doing that in the context of a local church. That's that's God's plan for us to bear those burdens together. And then to back up a little further, in Galatians chapter 5, he's been working out what it means to walk by the Spirit and to actually live, because in the first four chapters of Galatians, Paul has been making the case that we are saved by faith alone. 
Because what had happened in this church in Galatia is that people had come and they started preaching a false gospel, but it was a really tricky one because it was Jesus plus. See, follow Jesus and do this other thing, which for them was be circumcised. If you follow Jesus and fulfill the Jewish Old Testament laws and be circumcised for these new Gentile non-circumcised converts, then you'll be holy and then God will love you and accept you. And Paul says, no, 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 no. We are saved by faith alone and Christ alone. And that's the case that he makes for four chapters. And he is like, adamant. I mean, at the point he's telling them, like, I wish they would be, like, emasculated. He's just going off. It is, it is an intense letter. Lots of exclamation points when you read it. And he's saying, no, 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 it is Jesus and Jesus alone. But that doesn't then mean that it's Jesus and Jesus alone, right? The, the, the obvious and easy kind of response to that is going to be Jesus and Jesus alone. So that means that I can do whatever I want. And Paul says, no, but you, for freedom, you have been set free, is what he says in, in Galatians, the early in Galatians chapter 5. But he talks about the freedom is the freedom to obey. It's the freedom to do the things that are right and good. That when you become a Christian, something happens within you, and it's truly supernatural, and it's internal. And we can't put a meter on you and guess it, but what we see is that your life changes, and you no longer desire to do the things of the flesh, is what he calls in Galatians 5, and we'll read it here in a minute but you do desire to do the things that are according to the Spirit. You have new desires, you have new wants. And that's what I want to argue is that's what stewardship really is. Stewardship is the reflection of this new heart I have because Jesus has changed me. Because I've given my life to Christ and I see that he is the one and true way, the only way to God, that I can only be saved by him, that, that I can't work no matter how hard I work, no matter what I try to do, I cannot save myself, but I have to put my faith in Jesus alone. If I really believe that, that is going to radically change the way that I live my life. And I think that's going to look like being a good steward of your time and your money and your resources and who you are because you have focus now and the local church, I think, is the means that God is utilizing to do that. And so why is it that I want to say the local church is the means that God gives us to flesh out this truth that we are now Christians and saved and justified by grace? And I have four of them from our text in Galatians chapter 6, 6 through 10. The first one is simply this, reading from uh, Galatians uh, chapter 6, verse 6, it says, Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. And it is, and it is my argument, and I it, know it's got some negative connotation to it, and so we'll talk about that. I believe Christians should desire a professional in the pulpit. I know that might sound really arrogant as I stand here, that I should be a professional. And I don't mean it to, to sound that way. And so let me say what I don't mean. What, what I don't mean is small churches are not a stepping stone to big ones. That the gospel is not to be professionalized in such a way that if God calls a man to a church, I believe God has called him to that church, he should not just leverage that opportunity to get a different opportunity. The church isn't a place to come and make money. It's not because, well, you're the professional, so now you get to just to make a ton of money. And, and I think the pastor's life and salary should look a lot like the people that he pastors. That that's who you should care for. That he shouldn't be doing significantly better, but he also shouldn't be doing significantly worse than the people that he pastors. That seems to be what this passage is teaching us. That those who are taught share all good things with the one who teaches. It certainly does not mean that the one who takes the pulpit knows everything. I don't know a lot of things. There are a lot of things. I, I was just asked a question in our new members class, and I looked at the, the people taking it, and I said, and I laughed and said, I don't know. I'm still working through some of that. This is what this looks like at Redemption Hill. But that's a really good question. I don't think that I have all the answers or that I have some kind of special uh, uh, authority that gets to like tell you what to do in your life, that I have some like special, uh, sometimes I hear this phrase and it makes me kind of cringy because uh, I think it gets m misused. Like this person has a special anointing and then they get to like say this thing and now I have to obey it because they're like special. If the person in the pulpit isn't bringing it from the word of God, and if you can't see from the word of God how you're supposed to obey that, don't listen to that. 
But here's what I do mean, that we should desire a professional in the pulpit, is that we should desire somebody, a man of God who steps into this area and understands the task before him and understands the weight that comes with that task and does it with excellence, that does it in a way that, that, is, that is laborsome, that takes a lot of work and effort. We should not expect anybody to come into the pulpit and just wing it. I'm looking to hire an electrician right now. It's pretty expensive. If that electrician just came down to my basement that I'm trying to finish and said, eh, I don't know, I'll throw some wires up and we'll just kind of figure it out. At the end, we'll just square up and you'll pay me. No, you won't. I don't want my house to burn down. I want the electricity to work. And none of you would do that. If you're going to hire somebody for a job, you expect them to do a good job. Now, at the same time, your pastor isn't your employee, so the metaphor breaks down a little bit. But what I am trying to say is this, is when you do that, you're, you're ascribing value to something. Value to your money or value to the work that's being done. Value to, in my case, to my home. I want it to be done and done well. When we desire a professional in a pulpit, what I am trying to say is you should love the word of God in such a way that you desire that we can free someone to give their full-time effort to that task. See, when we invest in a man to be a pastor of a church so that he doesn't have to go and get another job, or other people have invested in our, in our case, uh, we are significantly funded by outside resources at this time as a church plant. When we went to those people and asked them, will you invest in Redemption Hill Church? Will you invest in me? We weren't just saying, because Josh is special. We were saying, because the word of God deserves it. Because the word of God is so precious, so wonderful in our sight that we want to support someone to bring us that word in a powerful and meaningful kind of way. So I'm not claiming anything to be special about me. What I'm trying to say is the Bible is just that good. The Bible is that good that it benefits all of us when somebody can give their full attention to the teaching of the scriptures. 1 Timothy 5, 17-18, Paul says this, let the elders, which is another word for pastors, who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Paul is quoting there from Deuteronomy 25.4, where he talks about when they would hook a mo- an ox up to uh, grind grain. You say you, you would be cruel to that animal to muzzle it so it can't eat some of the grain. It's the one doing all the work, so you don't muzzle that, that animal. And the other one seems to be a quotation from Jesus in Luke chapter 10, when Jesus sends out his disciples and he tells them, people are going to care for you. You're going to live off the generosity of others. That this was Jesus's primary plan. Now that we don't, we know that doesn't always happen. Sometimes pastors need to go and get other jobs. Paul was one of those people. And that's not wrong or bad when that happens. But what we see in the New Testament is the more normative thing, the thing that happens most frequently, is that we value the Word of God in such a way that we try to commit ourselves and our resources so that someone can, can give themselves full time to that labor. And we want to live out in honor, Galatians 6, 6, that we would let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Because here's what I want you to know. Preaching is powerful. Now, I'm not saying my preaching is powerful. I'm saying all preaching is powerful. And we'll get into this as we move into our next point here. Whatever you subject yourself to, whatever you're listening to on a weekly kind of basis, if you're saying, I'm going to go listen to someone talk and control the narrative for 30 plus minutes. And if you don't think that's going to change you, then you don't know how the human heart works. That will change you. It'll either change you for the better or it'll change you for the worse. Because preaching is powerful. And you're listening to preaching, whether it comes from a pulpit on Sunday morning or it comes from a podcast on your drive to work or it comes from the social media that you listen to or whatever it is, you are listening to preaching of some kind. And that's what I want to argue is that as Christians, we are saying the word of God is so important. We want our preaching to be good and we want to do all that we can to equip pastors to give us the best they can every Sunday morning. 
And if we commit to the provision of our pastors, I believe that we will reap what we sow. So reason number two is that so that we might reap eternal life. Why should we invest in the local church? So that we might reap eternal life. Looking at verses 7 and 8, it says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. We should sow our life, which just means to plant seed. For those of you who are unfamiliar with terms of agriculture, it just means to plant that seed. That's a pretty easy concept, right? You plant beans and corn grows up, that would be really weird and confusing, right? You would know, I messed something up in this process. We know whatever we sow, that's what you will reap. That's what you're going to harvest, And Paul is saying, listen, invest in these things because whatever you invest in, whatever you sow your life into, that's what you're going to reap out of your life. And he says, if you sow into the things of the flesh, you'll reap corruption, which is another way of saying you're going to reap death. You're going to reap death into your life. Now, we we can say that in, in really extreme ways and we can sprint to the end. And ultimately, I do think he's talking about eternity and eternal death. But listen, even in our community where we live now, you know, more like Narcan gets used in Prairie Township than it does every, in, like in almost any other township in this area. Don't be mistaken. You sow according to the flesh, you will reap death. We, we need to not be afraid to just to, to call that out. We need to tell our kids, if you sow according to the flesh, you'll reap corruption. It'll bring death into your life, literal death sometimes. The reality of living in the city is we see that happening all the time. So we don't want to miss that as well. That these things are serious and they're meaningful. And the reality is, is no five-year-old kid grows up and says, one day I want to be addicted to methamphetamines. Nobody says that, but we make little stewardship decisions, little by little by little. And we have a world and a culture where we've sown into the things of the world and we begin to reap corruption. And that's what we see over and over and over again. See, that's what I'm trying to say is is that God has given you the local church so that you might sow into it and then reap eternal life that you would see that it can change you and change those around us. That God is, is using the local church to breathe life into communities. Paul, when he's talking about this, pro, this concept of, of reaping uh, according to uh, the flesh and reaping corruption and reaping eternal life, he's talking about eternal life in an expansive kind of way, that eternal life does mean eternity with the Lord, absolutely. But eternal life begins now, in the here and now, that Jesus said that the, the enemy comes to steal, kill, destroy, but I have come that you might have life and life more abundant. And that doesn't mean if you just write a check to the church that you're going to go out and get a magic special blessing and money's going to fall from the sky. What I'm saying is if you invest your life into here and you sow your life into here, you'll have an abundant life. That doesn't mean an easy life, but it does mean a good and an abundant life. Even in the hardest times of your life, the joy of Christ will be with you and the peace of God will guard your heart and give you peace in the midst of things that you'll never understand. That's the promise that he's making. So sow your life into Christ. Sow your life into things that are eternal. And Paul, in Galatians chapter 5, verses uh, 16 through 25, he is very, very clear of what it means to sow according to the desires of the flesh and sow according to the Spirit. He says this, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Spirit are against, uh, excuse me, I've skipped a line. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. 
Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep and step with the Spirit. Our moral problems, as we look at that long list there in verse 19 and 20 and 21, our difficulties and failures of this life, I believe, are always related to a stewardship failure in your life. We don't end up in these places that are, are more, are they're less maybe socially acceptable kind of sins because we made some kind of wrong turn or we just like accidentally did these things. We end up in these places because we slowly over time sow our time and our energy and our focus into the things of the world. And God is telling you, you're going to reap corruption. You're going to reap more fleshly stuff. What starts out small will snowball and get bigger and bigger and bigger. That's the promise that he makes. But he's making another beautiful promise. If you sow according to the Spirit, for those of you who are Christians, for those of you who have been justified by faith in Jesus, it is possible for you to change. You are not doomed to stay where you are. You're not doomed to keep reaping these things. You have hope, wonderful, beautiful hope in the gospel that your life can look less like the desires of the flesh and more like the fruit of the Spirit. That's the promise. He's promising you, sow into the things of the Lord and you will reap eternal life. God will not be mocked. He will not be mocked. You will not be scoffed at. You will not be found wanting. You will not be disappointed. The promise God is making is if you sow into the things of the Spirit, you can change because the Spirit of God lives inside of you and it's changing you and it's powerful. And that's the promise of this text. That's what I want to see in your life is that you would sow into the local church because I think that's the means that God is, is giving us to do this in the context of Galatians 6 that it's these, these people who are spiritual, these groups of people doing this together, and that if we do that, we can change. Just to put them some things in perspective in our lives or what it looks like just in the everyday, I want to talk about personally and then corporately, what it looks like to sow just into the one place that we, that we know we get the Spirit of God is the Word of God. We know that this is the Spirit of God. It was written by the Spirit of God. Just to throw out an example here. According to Forbes... This is like jaw-dropping to me. I can't believe this is true, but Forbes magazine is pretty reputable. According to Forbes magazine, in 2021, the average American spent more than 1,300 hours on social media in 2021. 1,300 hours. Crossway, a Christian publishing house, did a study. I think it was a thousand readers, and they figured out what the average reading time was. And they claim that you can read the Bible all the way through in 74 hours and 28 minutes. You can read the entire Bible all the way through in 74 hours and 28 minutes. If we just matched the average American's time on social media with time reading the Bible in one year, you would read the Bible more than 17 times. Now granted, reading Leviticus and First Chronicles is way harder than scrolling on your phone. Okay? I do, I want to call that out. It's not a one-to-one comparison. There's only so much brain power in a day. And 20 minutes of Bible reading is more taxing on our finite brain, then, right, like, that's the problem with social media. It's too easy. So granted, I don't know that we can, like, make the one-to-one comparison. I don't know that you, the application point is, like, leave, swear off social media completely, and just read your Bible for 1,300 hours this year. Like, I don't think I'm going to be able to do that. I don't know that my brain can just, that's a lot, okay? But the extreme discrepancy, I mean, extreme discrepancy should be an alarm bell for us. You will reap what you sow, and we reap ourselves, or excuse me, we sow ourselves into the things of the world. We will reap corruption. 
this is a reality. I, I just want to encourage you. Uh, I, I looked it up. The Crossway, it's a, you can look it up. It's an easy thing to find uh, on, online. But, but the New Testament, um, if, if, we, if you started today, you could have the New Testament read by Thanksgiving if you read the Bible for 15 minutes a day. I did the math for you. And I actually even factored in about eight days of, of you know, I just forgot. Right? And, that, and that's going to happen. You're just going to forget. And that's going to happen. But, you know, if you're not reading your Bible on a regular basis right now, if I can just give you something really practical, starting in the book of Matthew, reading through the New Testament, if you just read 15 minutes a day, set a timer, 15 minutes a day, if the crossway study is right, you'll finish the New Testament by Thanksgiving with, with maybe even some time to spare if you're really disciplined. But that's, that, that's, that's what it looks like. That's what it looks like to, 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 to sow our life into the things of God. And he's promising if we do that, we will reap eternal life. The other thing I wanted to point out is just corporately. What does it look like to come to church on Sunday mornings? What does it look like for, for us to say, hey, we want our, our pastor, we want the people who take the pulpit to handle it in such a way that's professional. So then what does that mean for me as a congregation member? What does that look like for me? And I, I want to encourage you. What does it look like to get the sleep that I need to get so that I can be here? What does it look like to pull out the paper and pen and take some notes, even if that's not something you're accustomed to? Oh, I, I didn't take notes for the longest time in listening to sermons. And it was a game changer when I finally just got over it and I started it, it just getting down the sermon points that easy so that when I went to community group, what does it look like to read the questions before you actually get to community group so you're not just like, spitballing from the hip, right? What does that look like for our church and for our life? There's a man, his, his name is Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he was a, a preacher uh, in Britain in the early 20th century. And he's salty like you'd expect uh, an old guy in the early 20th century to be. And he even comes with, with a, like, uh, he, he was called the doctor, because he actually was a practicing physician before he became a pastor, but they called him the doctor, and God used his preaching ministry in an amazing and a powerful way. And he wrote this little book, it's actually it's a series of lectures to young pastors, and he's talking about what it looks like to, to not allow the, the congregation to drive the pulpit, but let the word of God drive the pulpit. And he's talking about this thing of, of what it looks like, and he's, and he's tracing something. Now, granted, remember, this is early 20th century, 1940s, 1950s, he's talking about here. And what was happening in that time is the sermon hour kept getting smaller and smaller and smaller. That was the trendy thing in 1945, was people, they just don't have the attention spans anymore. That's what they said. They don't have the attention spans to listen to good preaching anymore. And here's what the doctor has to say about that. Now, why is this? Is there not something seriously wrong with such people? This is not their attitude to a play or some other program on television. The trouble there is that it ends too soon. It is not the same with a football match or a baseball match or whatever else interests them. The pity for them is that these things come to an end so soon. But why the difference here? This is the most serious question. In those other realms, they do not object to the length because they enjoy it. They like it. They want more and more of it. Why then is this not the same with the Christian? Not to justify long sermons. I think long sermons aren't always a good thing. But what I want to say is as the doctor comes at us like a 1945 boxer with his you know, hands full back and his pants up to his waist and he just is swinging at you saying, why is it that when we talk about Bible study, when we talk about sermons, we talk about gathering together, all of a sudden everything is so laborsome. But Ohio State is going to play Notre Dame in a couple weeks at 8 o'clock at night and we are all going to stay up late to watch it. And we're going to scream at the TV. Maybe not all of us. Sarah's still going to bed. <laughs> She's looking at me like, no, I'm not. But that's the reality, right? You could put something else in the blank. She's a creative person. There's just truth to that. There's a truth to that that we have to see. And what God is promising is that if we reap according to the things of the Spirit, or excuse me, we sow according to the things of the Spirit, we will reap in those ways as well. This is not me saying, oh, because my preaching is good. What I'm saying is even in all the lackluster things about the your young preachers that you'll get here at Redemption Hill Church, they will give you the Bible. Nobody will make it into this pulpit, I promise you this, 
who does not preach from the Bible. And no matter how young and uh, new as, as we try to train up pastors or, or even, you know, stuttering that might happen, the Bible is powerful. It'll change you for the good. We still have two more points, so we're going to keep moving on. If we commit ourselves by God's grace, there's still even more good news. Because if we listen to the preaching of his word and take seriously the reading of his word, he will change you, and in due season, we will reap. Because reason number three, when you invest in the local church and invest in the things of God, your labor is not in vain. Picking up in verse 9, Paul says, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Paul is a guy who has been beaten for his faith, imprisoned for his faith, uh, chastised for his faith, disciplined and and yelled at because of his faith. He is telling you not to grow weary because he knows it's hard. Right now, we tell you, I just told you, you're going to get to a place where you're going to hit Leviticus or First Chronicles in your Bible reading plan, and you're just going to be like, I don't know what's going on. And you're going to push through. It gets really hard. There are times that these disciplines just get hard. It gets hard to say, we're committed to giving this, and then this bill comes up, and you're sitting there, and you're saying, whoo, all of a sudden, when that plate gets passed around this week, it's a little bit harder to give right? We all feel that. We, we all feel the time and the energy that we want to give, but then, but I want to do this work on my house, and we feel it. It's hard. It's hard to live out the Christian life. It's hard to be faithful in the ways that God has called us to be faithful. And because that hardness exists, Paul looks to you and says, don't grow weary. You will leap if you do not give up. I know this is hard. I know this is hard. Don't grow weary. God is promising you'll reap. It'll come. Just don't give up. Keep going. Keep pressing on. Press into Christ. Because the reality is, is you do not have to, desire, to, to gratify the desires of the flesh. In Matthew chapter 16, 17 through 18, Jesus tells Peter, after Peter has said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus, in verse 17, he says, and Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And then listen to what he says, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That is a promise from Christ that he builds on the rock, that is the confession that Peter makes, that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. And he's saying, this is what I'm going to build my church on, and the gates of hell will not prevail, not against you, not against me, not lone gun Christian out there, will not prevail against his church. What's going to make it to the end of the age? His church will. It doesn't matter how hostile the culture gets. It doesn't matter how things change. It doesn't, God has promised the church will endure. It might look different, but the church has endured serious persecution for most of its existence in most parts of the world. And God has said, it will endure. Don't grow weary Don't give up. Invest your life in this. And in due season, we will reap. So why should I invest in the local church? Because it's a guaranteed investment. God is saying he's not going to let the church go away. We'll plant more churches even with old ones die. It's going to keep going. And his plan is working and has been working for thousands of years. You hear the gospel of Jesus Christ in the middle of Ohio, thousands of miles away from where it all started because his plan works. It was a really, really good one. He calls people to themselves. They come and they gather in local churches and they send out missionaries and they keep going and they keep going and they keep going and he is saying that will make it to the end of the age. The gates of hell will not prevail against this. So don't grow weary. Your labor is not in vain, when we labor in the thing that God has already promised to establish and keep going and keep moving. Finally, reason number four. Why should we invest in the local church? 
because it provides focus, but not limitations. Looking at verse 10, it says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are the household of faith. Now when he says, so then, as we have opportunity, here's, he does not mean like, when it's really obvious that I should do some good in life, then I'll do some good in life. You know, as, the op- as I just kind of meander through life and I just have the opportunity to do something good, then I guess I'll do some good. What he's saying is, I think he's putting that in the context of the book of Galatians, and in that he is saying this, Jesus is coming back, or you're going to die. And so while you have opportunity, do good now. In the new heavens, in the new earth, when we go to be with the Lord for all of eternity, the good will be done accomplished. God doesn't need you to be hospitable anymore. You're going to live in his house. He doesn't need you to be evangelistic anymore. Everyone's going to be a Christian. The streets are going to be made of gold. The work will be finished. It will be totally complete. Paul is saying, well, you have the opportunity now, here in this life, to do good. Go and do good. You are going to die. You're not going to last forever. Listen, you get one shot at life. One. And he's saying, while you have the opportunity, while God has given you that opportunity, do good for everyone. Do what's right. Do good. Understand that now is the day. And as I say that, I want to say, listen, the good steward has a budget. The good steward has a budget that is written down and they know how much money is coming in and how much money is going out. You know why? Because they know that they're going to die. They know that it's one day, it's going to be curtain call and it's all out and it's all done and they want to see that the gift that God has given them, they're using it to its maximum to bless this world. The good steward keeps a calendar and knows when their appointments are coming up. You know why? Because time is a precious commodity, and you are not promised tomorrow. You don't know what's going to go on. You've got time. You need to make the best use of your time. When I was in my early 20s, I never kept a calendar. You know why? Because I was smart, and I could remember all the things that I needed to do. You want to know the truth? I was not being nearly impactful enough with my life in my early 20s. That's the truth. God made me to do more than I was doing, but because I was lazy, I was not getting the things done that I could get done because I didn't write it down. That's the reality. Why should we keep a calendar? Why should we make the meal plan, moms? Why should we do these things? Why should we plan out the future? Listen, because you're not guaranteed tomorrow. You get one shot at this life, and we want to maximize that opportunity. And I don't say that legalistically. I say that because I think if we understand that we are justified by faith, we will realize just what a wonderful gift we've been given when we were saved by Jesus. That when Jesus saved you, he didn't do it with precious stones or gold and metal. He did it by his precious blood that you will realize that my life matters and I have value because God has saved me and he loves me and he cares about me and he is saying, I want to use you and I've invited you into my mission to go out into all the world and make disciples, to see churches planted and be flourished, to see the gospel proclaimed everywhere. And he's saying, maximize that opportunity. Do the most that you can while you still have the opportunity to do good Do good. Work hard. And the good news is, is I'm more productive now than I was in my early 20s. But I have mentors in my life, like Pastor Rush at Paramount Church. And I got to tell you, I don't know what productivity is. That guy just finished another book. How do you do this? You know how? I've seen his schedule. It's meticulous. He lives life in such a way. And I've asked him why. He said, because I just want to be useful. 
I want to be useful to my king. I love Jesus. He'll tell me I love him. I just want to be as useful as I can. And so he works, man. And I'm not there yet. So I'm not coming after you if you're not there yet. But I I want to encourage you. Take the next step. Get disciplined. Be a good steward. Because you're not going to have forever. You're not going to have forever. God has given you today. Make the most of the time. Redeem that time, as Paul would tell us in the book of Ephesians. To do what's good and do the will of the Lord. But we also get some focus. And I find this to be one of the most helpful things. In the information age, there are just too many things I'm told I have to care about, like, deeply. Human trafficking, clean water in Africa, uh, malaria, pandemics, like all of these things. And, I, and I'm just one human being. And I, can't, I can't do it. It's overwhelming. I, can't, I cannot keep up with all this stuff. And I love that the Bible gives me some focus. Do good to who? To everyone. Do good to everyone. Why? Because everyone is made in the image of God. Everybody's made in the image of God. God has made us and he loves us and he's created us for good and, and, and he wants you to do good to everyone, but especially, primarily, to those of the household of faith. He's using family language. And all throughout the New Testament, we see people being called brothers and sisters of Christ. He is saying, listen, that's again the local church. That's where you can focus it in. You don't know what to do. You can focus it in on the local church. This is worth your life. This is, this is what you can do. I was talking to, to Judah the other day, and four-year-olds are funny, and he just looked at me really randomly and says, Daddy, you love me. Said, of course I love you. Yeah, I love you. And he says, yeah, but you love everybody, White. But you love everybody, right? I say, yeah, Judah. Daddy loves everybody. I try to love everybody. But Judah, you are special. I love you more than all the other four-year-olds in the world. And he said, Why? Judah, because you're my son. You're my son. We want to love everyone. Everybody is commit, made in the image of God, but you are finite. You're not like God. I think you need to love Redemption Hill Church in a way that you don't love the church in Bridge City. That doesn't mean we don't love the church in Bridge City. It doesn't mean we don't pray for the church in Bridge City. But if Chris gets a flat tire, you are not going to go to Bridge City and help him. But if Kendall does, you can. There is, there is a reality, a wonderful breath of fresh air that the gospel says to us, as God says, do good, especially to those of the household of faith. And he gives us some criteria <laughs> Because the world is just overrun with difficulty and problems. But at the same time, we care about these people in Bridge City that we pray for, like Reed and Shelby, like we just did, but we don't pray for some missionary that we don't know in a just equally unreached place. Why? Is it because we don't love people in Saudi Arabia? No. It's because Reed is Ben's brother. Ben is a member of our church. We're finite. I I can't keep a list of every missionary in the world. But I can remember Ben's brother because Ben is my brother. And he's my brother in a way that's different than every other Ben in the world. (laughs) And that's what I believe this passage is teaching us. We love everyone and we care for everyone. Yes, yes and amen. But you, if you want to be impactful in this world, you've got to make some decisions. You've got to make some investments, real ones. Real time in prayer, real money, real trips, real things. And you can't do that for everybody. But God, in his beautiful, wonderful, loving, sovereign plan, has brought people into your life through the proximity that they exist in your life. And the local church is one of those means that he shows you, this is my home. This is my home. And so we're going to invest in our home primarily and those who are sent out of our home. 
That doesn't mean we're not open to other conversations. But it does mean that we want to do good, especially to the household of faith, and we want to understand that that's to every Christian. Yes, but this is my house. This is where God has placed me. This is my family. And this is where I can tangibly live some of this out without being totally overrun by the demands of a culture that tells me I have to care equally about everything in every situation. I just can't keep up. It's overwhelming. But this focuses you. So it gives you focus, but not limitations. We do care about all people created in the image of God, absolutely. But we can focus and hone in on those that are part of the household of faith. I want to close this morning by reading for the last two sections of our membership covenant. When we become uh, members of Redemption Hill Church, people who join this particular local body, this is the, the promises that we make together. We're missing gospel and change. I just wanted to hone in on these two this morning. We'll read the whole thing. We read the whole thing actually when we... Um, bring in new members to our church. We usually read it all together. It's a good reminder for everybody. If that doesn't happen, we try to read it at least once a year around a community group time, usually around January-ish. We try to make that happen because we don't want to just like make this uh, promise, make these promises and then forget about what they are. So these are, in a way, our vows to each other. There, there are, as we come to a family, this is what we're saying that we're doing. And so I just want to read just from community and mission. It says community. Through preaching, small groups, and one-on-one discipleship, we want every member to grow in wise and godly counsel, living the Christian life together. We plan to be members of Redemption Hill Church, and we work to help see it established and flourish. We commit to gathering regularly with Redemption Hill Church. We commit to fulfilling the one another commands of Scripture as we move towards membership to love, serve, forgive, teach, admonish, encourage, and pray for one another mission. It is our mission to please Christ for proclaiming this paramount gospel to those near and far through personal evangelism, global missions, and a strong church planting initiative. We yearn to see the nations worship as many hear the Holy Spirit's call, respond with faith and repentance, and are made complete in Christ. We read and affirm the Redemption Hill Constitution and Bylaws, and we affirm the missional direction and vision of the church and commit to using our time, gifts, and resources to further its mission. We commit to living like missionaries by praying for those who need Christ as well as striving to make disciples by consistently displaying and declaring the gospel to our neighbors, family, friends, and coworkers. We affirm that we pray for Columbus and seek its good by engaging in deeds of mercy and kindness. These are the promises you made when you became a member of Redemption Hill Church. And may I just add to that, church. Let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially those who are the household of faith. I close very briefly by just reading the three challenges that I gave last week again. I've asked you, particularly the members of Redemption Hill Church, this little short series was a special one really for you. And I'm asking, like I asked many people as we went to start this church a year and a half ago, and we, I started making phone calls from the desk in the bedroom of our little apartment at the time. We asked them that they would pray and ask the Lord what they might give this year to Redemption Hill Church. And now we're asking you as members that same question. What is God calling you to give, to invest in for Redemption Hill Church? I am suggesting kindly, and I will not hunt you down about this. This is in your court, that you would seek some godly accountability in this area. As you work to decide what is a reasonable, proportionate amount of income that you should give, that that is way too complicated for me to answer from a pulpit to a room of people in way different kinds of situations. But my suggestion instead is that you would find people of wisdom in your life that you can open up to and have, and, and they can help you. They can help you come to that decision and then keep you accountable as things go on. Then finally, I am asking that joyfully, 
from that scripture reading that we read this morning that it is each man and woman should decide in their own heart what they ought to give, but that we would know that God loves a cheerful giver. So I'm asking that you would give joyfully on a regular basis, but you would do that with an eternal mindset. I will pray for us, and at that time I'm going to ask the band to come up and do a song, and then after that we'll transition to our time of the Lord's Supper after that song. But let me pray. God, we love you. I know the people in this church love you. They love you, and they show that already through their faithful giving. God, you know that this sermon series was in no way a a, a means to beat anybody up, but God, and I hope it was a means to encourage the faithful who are here, God. I pray that that you would use this passage, that you would just use your word to help those who are growing weary. That they would know that you promise that they're going to reap, that you've promised nothing's going to stop your church. And that even as local churches might come and go, that your church, your universal church, is, is, is unstoppable. And that's going to last to the end of the age when Jesus comes back to take us all home. So God, I pray that they would be encouraged by that reality, that they would know that this is worth giving their life to, and that local churches are a manifestation of what you've promised to do in the church at large, that the local church helps us put rubber to the road. God, I pray for our church. I pray that that we would look to serve one another according to the very grace that you've given to us. Whatever those gifts that you've, you've blessed on each member of this church, that they would know that if those gifts aren't being used, our church is hurting. That you have called every member of this church to be here. And because you've called us here, God, that means you have a place for all of us to serve and to take part, to contribute to the body of Christ, even though that might mean in a varied kind of way. Lord, I pray for us as we pray about how to best use our time. And there's just not the ability to talk about enough things in one sermon, but God, that that good stewards plan to rest, that we'd be rested people so that when we are working, we're able to give you all of our focus and attention. God, help us in our workplaces when we're doing things that maybe don't feel very spiritual to know that we do all things as if we're working unto the Lord, that we would do things with excellence, that in everything that we do, whether we eat or we drink, that we would do it all to the glory of God. Lord, I pray for my church. I pray for my people and my flock that you've entrusted to me, that I might pour into them, that I would be a good steward of my resources and of their resources. As you've called me to to humbly and, and with trembling lead your body of Christ, that this little outpost of heaven would be led well and that you would change and sanctify me and make me a better pastor and make me a, a better steward of my own time and, and abilities and, and, and money and, and, and all those things as well, that you would help me and my family not be afraid to give sacrificially and faithfully on a regular basis and that we would invest in your church and your work that you're investing in and all over the world. God, help us lead the way. Help us use the things that you've given us from cars and homes and gifts in such a way that brings you honor and glory. I ask this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.